Welcome to Reframing Ministries with your host, Colleen Swindoll-Thompson. Here's Colleen. Hi, my name is Colleen Swindoll-Thompson. I am the director of Reframing Ministry at Insight for Living, and it is my delight and honor to introduce to you Chris Keith. Thank you for being here today, Chris. Thanks for having me. Chris has an incredible incredible story that we're going to talk about. Um, it will involve forgiveness, hope, loss, grief, and coming back from some things that we never expect in life. So Chris, I'm just going to ask you to start us off with your story. Sure. Well, I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and so that's where all this happened. I was born um, in 1980, and kind of grew up from what I thought um, just normal family life, right? My brother, my brother Mikey was three years older than me. My parents got married young and um, I just didn't know anything different. So, but I did notice that my parents fought a lot. And so that was um, normal to me and my brother. And that's just kind of how I saw a relationship. And so I fast forward all the way till about five years old. My brother was eight and my dad's anger anger issues had gotten a lot worse. He was he was an alcoholic, and him and his his buddies would um, you know do drugs on the weekends, and so he and he it just that fueled his anger problem, and so him and my mom um, would just fight all the time. He would it would it would be physical, but it would be also mental, and um, it got worse and worse and worse. But again, as I said, you know me and my brother we were that's what we saw all the time. We were right. used to the yelling. And so, and he was physically abusive to y'all as well. Yes, and so most of the time, I would say ninety percent of the time, he was just physically abusive to my mom. Every now and then, it would be me and my brother, but mostly it was just my mom. Okay. I, you know, me being five, I didn't have maybe the mental capacity to, to do this, but my brother would sometimes uh, do things in the middle of them fighting to try to distract him. From yeah, which is very common. Yelling at my mom and yeah. stuff like that, and. Um, you know, I remember several times where we we were just so in fear of my dad. Um, and, and I've talked to relatives that have, have said, you know, most of the time he was kind of a good, he was a pretty good guy, but he just had fits of anger, rage, and just the, the narcissistic tendencies, you know. And so, but my, my mom had said, you know, and he, he had beaten her so badly that um, several times we had gone to a battered women's shelter. She, you know, me and my brother and my mom, but as a lot of women do in cases of domestic violence, she kept taking him back. She kept thinking, you know, maybe he would change or just just the f- level of fear. And uh, she even told my aunt, or her half-sister, she even told her, you know, he would never hurt the kids. And so we're going to give it another try. So would you hear her say that? Um, that about hurting the kids? Yeah. I never heard her say that. My, my aunt is one that told me that later, mm. that that's actually what she said before this happened that I was getting ready to talk about. And several times, basically, they're separated in, in the middle of getting a divorce. But again, I didn't know if that would ever get completed anyway because my mom was constantly giving him another chance. And there's so much fear mm. with domestic violence that if they go back, would he then abuse and assault her right. for Leaving and even even talking to I'm fast forwarding here a lot, but even talking to my uncle a while back, he said, you know, she never really 
told us about some of the details because yeah. she knows she knew if she did, there would be even more uh, more problems. And so, my uncle really only knew about the the verbal abuse mm -hmm. and mental. And so, um, anyway, going back to the, my dad was just very obsessed with my mom, and um, they even found a picture. After this happened, they found a picture in their bedroom, a family picture of um, all of us. And my dad had taken a Sharpie and crossed out my face and crossed out my brother's face and circled my mom's face. Like he was, he was just very obsessed with my mom. And that's all he really cared about. And um, maybe he was very good at, at talking his way back into things. But at this time, they were separated. And again, I was five, my brother's eight, but they were separated at this time. And this was a Sunday. And my dad had called and asked to, you know, hey, let me come over, you know, let me, let's talk this out. And my mom agreed. And so my dad came over on a Sunday. He was obviously under the influence of something. Um, and they just immediately started, started fighting. But again, like I said, me and my brother, it was normal. Um, not, not really so much normal, but we just... You, you know, didn't have another environment yeah, to compare it to. Really, so that's all you knew. That's all I knew. And so... They're yelling again. That's all of it. Now, if things when things started to get physical, then of course it would, uh, it would, you know, make us realize that it was more serious. But right now they were just yelling, and they eventually put us to bed. And I may have told you this previously in conversation, but like we we didn't share bedrooms. Okay. But that there, were, as you can imagine, because of all the yelling, so many times we would sleep in the same room. Yeah, siblings often come together in hostile environments to protect one another. And, and my brother was very protective. I'm going to cry already. But anyway. That's okay. So I can't remember which bedroom it was. I think he was sleeping in my room that night. But um, so one of us would just make a pallet on the other one's, by the other one's bed. And so we'd, we'd talk and then fall asleep. Um, so the fighting went on. We ended up falling asleep. And um, it's okay. The, it just, the fight escalated uh, back to their bedroom. And don't know what was said. Maybe my mom said no for the last time. Um, but my dad put his hands around her throat and started to strangle her. And then uh, laid her down and suffocated her with a pillow on the at the foot of the bed. You heard this? No. Okay. no this was all, we were, we were asleep. And um, he went to his closet and grabbed his 38, came into our room where we were sleeping, stuck the gun to the back of my brother's head and pulled the trigger. I came over to where I was, stuck the gun back behind my left ear and pulled the trigger. And then he went into the living room, sat in the chair and you know, killed himself. And uh, this was Sunday evening. And the next day, uh, my mom, my aunt, actually several relatives, they all worked at the same like insurance company. My mom, everybody in the family kind of knew the tenseness and the situation going on. Um, so my mom didn't show up for work. And my aunt, you know, she was immediately worried. And she told her boss, I got to go. I got to go check on my sister. Because she called the uh, police before she left and said, hey, I need you to meet me over here. I think something happened. And they basically told her, you know, if something didn't happen, we can't really go over there. Just let us know. So she drove over there by herself. Uh, she was immediately concerned when she got there because both cars were still at the house. Knocked on the front door. No answer. She went around the back, and um, we had a sliding glass door. The curtain was open, so she could see my dad in the living room. And she flipped out, went next door, and called the police. 
paramedics came, the news crews. 28 minutes past five on this Monday, and here are today's top stories. A five-year-old Tulsa boy is in critical condition at a Tulsa hospital. His mother, father, and brother are dead. The bodies of Michael and Deborah Keith and their eight-year-old son, David, were found this morning in their East Tulsa home. All three had been shot. Five-year-old Christopher was also shot in the back of the head, but was still alive when the bodies were found. A gun was found in the father's lap, and police believe he shot his wife and two sons and then killed himself. Police say the Keiths had been having marital problems. This Southeast Tulsa home is a scene of a family tragedy. It ended in murder and suicide. Police say 27-year-old Ted Michael Keith shot and strangled his 27-year-old wife, shot his two sons, and then turned the gun on himself. About 9.30 this morning, police found three of the victims dead. But among the scenes of death, they also discovered life. We got one alive. Officers found five-year-old Christopher Keith barely alive. Lifelike crews rushed him to St. Francis Hospital. Police say the shootings may have occurred over 12 hours ago, and all evidence points to the father. They found a 38 caliber gun in his lap. They started looking around, um, you know, basically saying it was an, another statistic. It was uh, humanly impossible to survive. They estimated it was about 12 to 18 hours um, since it happened. Um, they looked around, they pronounced uh, all four of us dead. So there's one officer reported that rigor mortis already started setting in on my body. Um, and so then that was it. They did, their, they did their walk around. The news crews did whatever they say about a senseless tragedy, and they all started packing up. The paramedics started uh, getting ready to leave. And as one paramedic was leaving, and we actually have the footage online, it's surreal for me to see because it almost looks fake. You've seen it? The, the part where... The paramedic noticed. Yeah. And so the paramedic, as he was leaving, he saw my arm moving. And uh, then we, they have, I guess someone, uh, I think it was CBS News, was just recording at this time. And the guy walks out and says, hey, you know, we've got one alive in here. And um, I was talking to one of my ministry friends, and I said, you know, that looks fake, like they reenacted it. But he's like, no, no, I think the guy was just so shocked that they almost missed this little five-year-old boy still alive. So, um then all of a sudden it turned into like, instead of just a crime scene, they're just trying to save this little boy's life because as the only survivor. And again, on that same footage, it's, 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 uh, all right. it's just crazy to see that they're not, you know, they didn't put me on a stretcher right away like they do when people get injuries. Right. The, the paramedic is just yeah, I saw, holding I me saw and just running and my head is bouncing, you know, and I, they're just totally- How are you alive? Totally scared and- um, they get me down to the gurney, then to the, hot, to the helicopter, and then to St. Francis Hospital in Tulsa. And I just, I was talking to you the other day about just the amazing way God orchestrates so many little things in life. And the fact that my, I, every time I say my grandparents, they're not really my blood relatives. They're actually kind of through marriage and it's kind of a crazy family tree story. But my um, soon to be, I went to live with them eventually. But so basically, my grandpa had the wherewithal to call one of his friends at uh, at church who was a lawyer and said, hey, I need to get power of attorney over this guy, you know, That's right. my grandson really quick because I have to authorize whatever whatever they need and because my actual grandma, they couldn't find her, they couldn't locate her. Just little things like that because when I got to the hospital, everything was kind of ready and the surgeon told my grandpa, you know, I don't, I don't know how he survived this. I mean, he was laying in his own pool of blood for 12 to 18 hours. Um, 
I have to do the surgery or he's going to die pretty quickly. But there's a great chance he might die during the surgery. And so my grandpa said, you know, the surgeon was a Christian. And so they, they said a prayer. And they went in, I think it was like six to eight hours of surgery. And they didn't know what to expect because, you know, my dad didn't, he didn't miss. It was, uh, he stuck the gun right behind my left ear. Okay. And I have three scars on my head. Bullet went in here, destroyed my cerebellum, which is the back part of the brain that That's controls. like where every, executive yeah. functioning and, mm -hmm. uh-huh. And so. Decision making. Bullet shattered and then came out behind my right ear. And so, like, if you were to see my x-ray, um, the cerebellum is missing, and there's you can actually still see bullet fragments in my head. And the brain stem is connected how? Mm, and so, and then later I talked to a, a neurosurgeon that said the amazing thing about the the brain when you're little, because mm. I was I went to a neurosurgeon to see if because there's anything wrong, because they thought there might be something wrong with my like speech impediment uh -huh. or just physical, and um, he said no the the thing about the brain is you were so young that even though it doesn't look normal it all just kind of took over other functions and so it's pretty so rewired in yeah. some ways to connect the way that it needed to connect yeah and so it's, it's just amazing how that all works um and to think somebody doesn't believe in uh, a god that creates all that is is astounding to me but anyway um, that that point right there is incredible mm -hmm. the fact that your brain which was shot out rewired and connected in a way that you are functioning today. I think I'm normal, I, you know, I think I'm pretty normal. Well, we're so. all kind of not normal, <laughs> but that's okay. But, um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, and I'm laying in the hospital after the surgery. Um, what did they do? I mean, the, is the back, was the back of your head, did they pick that up or? All I know, I have a scar on the front of my head also from surgery, so I don't know all the technical things they had to do. Uh -huh. um, they got as much of the bullet out as possible. There's just a few fragments still in there. Um, which makes it interesting at like airports for uh, <laughs> extra, you know, but anyway. Um, so I'm laying there in the hospital, you know, five-year-old boy. Don't, all I know is I, went, I, just, I just went to sleep and I woke up and now I'm in the hospital. Um, if I do remember anything from that night, it's, it's pushed back and I don't, I don't rec recall it, which mm -hmm. is, I think, a blessing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm waking up, my head is bandaged, my grandparents are to the right, and... They had taken me and my brother to church. They would take us to church every week because my parents didn't go. So we we always called them grandparents, but again, they weren't blood relatives. Mm -hmm. um, but they were sitting to the right, um, and people, that I, I can remember like it was yesterday, the doorway was kind of diagonal to the right, and people were coming in, flooding uh, from my grandparents' church or from the neighborhood, and just, you know, just checking in, bringing gifts. But, you know, I really I didn't care. You know, I was... I was staring at that doorway just waiting because, again, I didn't know what happened. And I was so I was staring at that doorway waiting for my mom to come through or my brother to run in or something, somebody to tell me it was gonna be that okay. it was going to be all right. And uh, it never happened. And so that's I think that was the first moment I started realizing I was alone. I mean, I knew my grandparents were over there, but it wasn't the same. And, um, but you were, I mean, you had such a terrifying situation that there was such a longing for that. Mom. Yeah, for for the nurturing mom that we all long for. Yeah, and so, again, also, my grandparents especially, but everybody was so, they didn't want to tell, no one was telling me anything, and I was pretty much in a, vegeta a vegetative state. I couldn't speak. I had no strength, and so I was just laying there. You know, I could see bandages on my head. And you could hear? 
I could hear. That uh -huh. was about. And so. But you couldn't talk. I couldn't speak, and I had no any any muscle muscle movement. I'm assuming that's probably from the injury. Sure. But um, and no one was telling me things. So I slowly just started realizing something's you know something's wrong, and um, it was just like killing me inside. And eventually, I started getting strength back, and I can still remember it. My grandpa will tell this story like it's the most amazing story in the world about the first words I said, you know, and he's like, if he, if he start, if he were here and start telling you about it, he just, this huge smile, you know, it was, and all it was is he was asking my grandma if she wanted a drink and I just said something about, you know, get me one too. And anyway, he tells that story and it's just, his eyes light up. But, um, so I finally started getting my strength back, started to talk, uh, graduated to a wheelchair and eventually they, there was a big like custody battle. It was very sad. There was a big custody battle um, because my regular real grandma had some things going on, and my grandparents wanted to take me. They finally agreed to let them have guardianship of me, uh -huh. so I never really was officially adopted. But um, I went home with them, and the state told them, you know, don't tell this boy what happened. He can't handle it. Um, and so, for the longest time, I was led to believe that I was in a car accident. And then I'm the only one that survived. And I, again, I was I was so shy that I didn't ask questions. I just kind of went with that, you know, whatever. Um, well, you always, you, you everything was fearful. Mm -hmm. So you didn't know how to approach anything. But did you wonder, am I really knowing the truth? Because kids, kids spot stuff pretty mm -hmm. quickly. Or did you think, yeah, it was a car accident? At that time, I just, car accident, fine. I was just so hurt that. You were alone. That, that I, you know, I was I had to figure out how to do this by myself, and I was a little kid. And but as I got older, I did. Yeah, I started trying to figure things out. So anyway, they took me home again. They wouldn't tell me anything, and they they don't have like the manual on how to raise a kid like this, you know. So they're scared. My grandparents now being an adult and having kids of my own, I, I'm starting to try to see their side. Mm. And my grandma said, you know, they were scared. They didn't know what to do. She said for the first year. I was so scared that I would sleep on a pallet in their bedroom and um, just wow. trying to figure things out. Um, but, but again, and I don't even, I feel like I don't even need to say this, but it was just by the grace of God, the, a miracle of God that, I mean, I, I was back in school within like a few months, you know, and they made me switch schools because my brother was, you know, popular at school. They didn't want the kids messing with me. And so I went to a new school in the middle of the year. And I, How did you go to school? I mean, were you terrified? I don't know. I just, no, I wasn't really terrified. Um, I do remember, and again, I probably should ask my grandma why she did this, but it's like the first day she just pulled up and dropped me off and I walked into <laughs> kindergarten by myself and it was like, what's going on here? But um, don't even, I'm not sure because it's not like we all walk our kids into class right. and I don't know, it was a different time back then. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I got older and I walked, I walked to school on my, by myself, which I would not let my kids do now. So it's, you know, times were different, of course, right. but yeah, I just knew at that point uh, life is not going to be the same. And I don't have my best friend. I don't have my mom. Um, but I still, I just knew something inside, was, inside me was saying, you know, you, you just got to keep going. I mean, someday it's got to be better, right? And so, um, so as school went along, I started getting in trouble a lot because not for bad stuff, but in my mind, not bad stuff, but for talking, just trying to be a class clown, trying to trying to get people to like me. Right. Um, you wanted I, to be seen. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't really care if it was like fake friendships. Right. You know, I just wanted people wanted to know wanted people to know that I was there, relevant, maybe. Um, 
but just kept getting in trouble and trouble. And um, again, didn't know what happened, but every now and then I'd go visit extended family and they would say something or accidentally let something slip. And then I would kind of, I would kind of get weirded out and I'd go home and ask my grandparents about it and they, they'd have to try to kind of dance around the subject. And it was just, it was just, it was a total uh, weird situation. And so now it's something I'm kind of having to see on the flip side because I'm a parent of young kids and my five-year-old is asking me where her grandma is. And, um, mm. Or she, she knows that they're not here. She's asking me how she died. And so it's, it's just surreal having to be on the other side now as a parent talk about that. But um, Okay, I want to ask you about that. Mm. How would you, do you wish it had been handled differently? Now as I'm older, to me again, of course, and I say this a lot. People are like, "How's this?" And I just—it's just my life. I mean, this right. is all I know. Um, I guess it could have been handled differently, but I think my grandparents did the best they could, sure. and they didn't—they didn't know what else to do. So basically, kind of fast forwarding, they—I was twelve, and they decided, "Hey, we should probably tell you about what happened." And so, again, and and I had kind of—they, my grandma had kind of sent me to a different counselor, um, or she'd put me in counseling, and then. After a while, they'd be like, I don't know what else to do. I mean, and so I'd go to another counselor, another counselor. And so I kind of felt like I was just being passed around. And, you know, my grandma would drop me off. I'd go in. And because in my mind, and I was probably partly my fault. In my mind, I was like, you know, this stranger's not going to be able to help me with my life. You know, so I probably wouldn't talk. I wouldn't say too much. Well, you probably had a lot of resistance, too, because of the attachment issues. And, you know, I don't trust this person that I don't know. And then, you know, and I had started getting a lot of trust issues. You know, I mean, my own dad tried to kill me. So it's like, who... Who am I supposed to trust? And um, even to this day, I still struggle with trusting people. You know, of course so, you do. Um, but I know at twelve, and again, kids are smart. I started figuring things out. Uh-huh. So by the time I was twelve, I had started kind of putting pieces together. I mean, I always knew how my dad was and and just his behavior. But again, I didn't know the specifics. But I started figuring things out, not completely. And I remember this one story just because I was so um, confused, but I was looking for answers. And I remember walking home from school with one of my buddies, and it was probably, I don't know, it was probably nine or ten, I don't know, some, around that age. And I was like, yeah, man, did you know that, you know, all this stuff with my family, did you know I got shot? And um, he's like, no way. And I go, well, yeah, really, in the back, check it out. And I remember walking home and I had take my shirt off and I was like, yeah, check it out. And he goes, there's nothing here, man. There's nothing here. And I was like, what? And so then I put my shirt on and I was all embarrassed because I, I was for sure, because I had kind of pieced together information from my extended family right. and I was like, all right, there's got to be a scar on my back. Anyway, that was kind of, so I always remember so that. So that's what I'm talking about. Kids know mm-hmm. when there's something that they're trying to figure yeah. out. Now, had there been a funeral? Had you attended a funeral or had you was there graves? I mean, what? Yeah, there was there was a funeral, and I have the uh, the pamphlet uh-huh. or whatever. Um, I don't remember. I don't recall. Sure. I, I don't actually. I probably did. I don't. I don't know if I was there or anything, but I, right. I do have that. Um, my mom, and my brother are are buried in Broken Arrow, which is uh-huh. right by Tulsa. Uh-huh. And then my dad, they had him buried separately. Uh-huh. He's in Tulsa. And so, yeah, every time we go back to visit my grandparents, we'll go by and you know put flowers out. But um, so anyway, when they sent me down at 12, well, first they said, Chris, you know, 
we're in, you're going to go see Mr. Tyner. And he was the guy at our church who was a counselor. And I was friends with his son, played basketball together. That was really my only avenue of, I'm sad to say, but just as a kid enjoying life sure. was playing sports. And so... Well, play is so healing too. Yeah. And um, I always felt like a family or a part of a team. Mm -hmm. And so that's just how I kind of dealt with things. And he was like, my grandparents said, you know, we're going to see Mr. Tyner. And I go, okay, that's fine. And it was just, just a huge skyscraper. And uh, we got it there and I knew something was all different because usually they don't go with me to the appointments. But this time, I, both my grandparents were there. And we started riding up the elevator. And they're walking in with you. Something's yeah, really yeah. different. And so we started riding up the elevator together. And I'm thinking in my head, okay, this has got to be something about school. You know, I've been getting in trouble. And so I'm in my head, I'm trying to think of all these reasons or excuses. Sure. But anyway, we get in there, we, you know, say hi to Mr. Tyner. We all sit down and they say, you know, Chris, we may have waited too long to tell you about this. Maybe we should wait longer. Um, but we figure it's time to tell you about your life and all the details. And they laid out the newspaper articles that I, you know, I carry around in my wallet, uh, the video footage. And they just started talking to me about things that basically pieces I hadn't put together yet. I had knew, I had known most of what they were telling me, but not all of it. So then all of a sudden it was like this wave of emotions coming back. It's almost like happening again. All the, 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 trauma. the fear, the betrayal, the abandonment, just all of the, the hatred, uh, being mad at, you know, my mom for taking it back so many times, being mad at my grandparents for not telling me about my life uh, sooner because I could handle it. You know, kids think we could handle anything. And then also, you know, kids always find a way to blame themselves. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know what they call that like survivor's guilt or something like that. And so, you know, why did I survive? My brother didn't and, and so just stuff like that. And so this whole whirlwind at 12 years old, and so I basically became even more of a recluse. And so I basically would just get up, go to school, come home, get a snack, go to my room, come out for dinner. And then Were go you to suicidal? Yeah, not, I mean, I was depressed. I would say I was depressed a lot throughout childhood, not suicidal the whole time, but there were a few years where it was just... I mean, I would just lay in my bed, cry myself to sleep, and then figure what's the point, you know? And so, yeah. Did I'll, you miss your brother? Yeah. And, they, you know, we, because all of my memories of him are us just playing outside and doing all this stuff. And so, you know, I have a few memories of each member of my family. Yeah. And, you know, with my mom and brother, they're just all positive, but all the memories of my dad are, you know, negative. And so, but yeah, my brother, he was just uh, always taking care of me. I think that he felt that was his job. And so I did, and uh, you know, and I'd see kids, and I used to write a lot of poetry, and that really helped me as well. But I used to, and I remember writing about this. But I, I would see kids um, fighting with their siblings, and in my head, I'm just thinking about, you know, man, I wish my brother were even here. And so, and then I get older, and people would complain about their parents, and I'd be like, well, at least you have parents, you know. And so, I kind of went around with that mentality, but I was like, yeah, very. I don't know if about very suicidal, but I was just thinking that might be the easiest I mean, way to go. You had to feel just totally, um, totally alone. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I think I didn't know what that, what Heavenly Father was. I didn't know any of that yet. But I think, you know, the Holy Spirit was saying, hey, it's going to get better. It's got to, you know, you just persevere. And I didn't know what perseverance was at that time. I just knew I had to keep going. And kind of like this sports mentality, just don't give up, don't quit. And so kind of how I went through even d days when I'm having a bad day even even now it's like having a bad day just push through it tomorrow tomorrow might be better some days tomorrow's worse mm -hmm. um, but eventually it gets better 
And um, do you have physical um, pain from as a result? Do you have headaches or do you struggle with any like sensory things, light, um, sound? No, not that I, nothing that I know of stemming from that. I do know I had nightmare, the recurring nightmares sure. for the longest time. Um, and the funny thing is, and I was I think, talking to you about this the other day, they the time they went started going away is when um, this youth minister in my church started investing in me, and um, wow, it's just kind of cool how that all kind of took place. Because my grandma said it was the exact same dream. It was like once a week, and I would wake up in the middle of the night crying, and then I would come sleep in their room, and it just and then she she'd try to get me to explain what was happening, and I just couldn't explain it. I could see it, but I couldn't explain what was going on, and um, but yeah, about about fourteen when. My grandparents, you know, had me going to church. At first, I just went to church to humor them for the free donuts, you know. And so, sure. but eventually, I mean, at t when you're like 13, <laughs> yeah, 14, you go to church because it's fun. They got yeah, good donuts and uh, yeah. so they have cute girls, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Basically, it. And so, but eventually, uh, it's like you you start to grasp and you start to actually start paying attention mm -hmm. to lessons and seeing other people's lives being changed um, just by living for Christ. And so. It started intriguing me, and I we had just gotten this new youth minister and his wife. They're so young; this is probably their first job, and they just started investing in everybody. And then they and he came up to me, um, and usually I tell this story almost everywhere I go speak because this this was a life changing day for me. Um, I again I was just hanging out the church, basically social reasons. I became friends with everybody, class clown kind of guy. Long for acceptance mm -hmm. as well. But there was a weekend retreat at this uh, camp in Oklahoma, and so we all went. I didn't have anything to do. My basketball, all my buddies were going, so I went. And uh, so like I think it was like Saturday evening, there was like a worship service. Anyway, I didn't want to really be there, so I snuck out the back and went back to the dorm rooms. Well, my youth minister, well, we have two different versions, but he says he likes my version better. But um, <laughs> We'll go with yours. I He followed me, and he came in the dorm rooms, and he sat down, and he says that he was just, he had a headache, and he wanted to go back to the dorm, and this way, but from what I saw, he had followed me, and then he sat down, and he said, "You know, he said, Chris, you talk a lot, but you really don't talk a lot about yourself. You know, I, I can, I can tell looking in your eyes something's wrong." And he said, "You know, do you mind telling me about your past or all that?" And I, again, I have never talked about it, um, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but between twelve and fourteen, was just a bunch going on, and I never told anybody about all, even everything I knew. Even my best friend didn't know this because I wanted to be a regular kid. Yeah, you did tell me that. And I didn't know who to trust, so I didn't want people just being my friend because they felt sorry for me. Right. And so nobody knew. Nobody at church. I mean, did you feel like you had this big, humongous, secret balloon that was inside of you? Yeah, and that was probably, that was probably what was causing even more depression because sure. I just felt, I mean, nobody cares, you know. And I started, I, I don't I have to say self-taught because I think I started learning throughout life that most people don't care. Um, and that's one bad habit I've picked up is when I'm talking, um, and my wife will call me on this all the time, is I'll talk really fast because I'm in my head I'm thinking they're not really, they don't really care what I'm saying. Mm. And so I try to get to the point. If I'm telling a joke, sometimes I skip the whole middle of the joke and just tell the punchline <laughs> and ruin the joke just because I'm trying to get it over with because I know people's attention spans are short, and that's probably just my ADD sure. kicking in. And um, uh, mumbling and talking fast, it just so that's always been something I've been working on. And, um, but, um, that is, so anyway, he followed me and said, Hey, I want to, you know, learn about your life if I could. And, um, 
again, I don't, I never talked about it. So I was like. Did he know anything? All he knew was that I lived with my grandparents, okay. really. And he may have talked to my grandpa privately. They were friends, mm -hmm. so they may, he may have. But he said, you know, tell me about what's going on. And um, I don't think I could have done it without crying. So I basically took, took out the newspaper article that I carry around in my wallet. And I said, okay, read this. And he was sitting across, there, there, it was just a uh -huh. room with bun bunks. And uh, he was sitting across from me, and he started reading it. He was probably, again, you know, I was 14. He's probably 22. I mean, he was young for uh, minister, youth minister. And so he just started reading it. And I remember looking at his face, and he just started started crying. Mm -hmm. And um, the craziest thing, like, f you know, and I've always been taught that it's a huge weakness for a man to cry. And so sure that, that was, was very shocking to me at first. And then all of a sudden, it just kept kept coming and not, I'm not talking about like sobbing because you see a, a sad commercial or a sad movie he was like bawling Great. like like he had snot coming out I mean he yeah. just he couldn't hold it back like and um that's so great I was like for you yeah for I was shocked that this man I respect you know is crying just over a piece of paper and so but that paper was your life yeah it's crazy and so then my best friend Tony walked in hey what are you guys doing and he did again. He didn't know, um, so he read the article, and um, he didn't cry as much. But he he teared up, and uh, I started. That's the day I started realizing that that people do care. You know, I started realizing that people actually care about you. Okay, so in life, you know, most people probably don't care, but there's always a handful of people that do care about you, and you have to grab onto those people and hold on to them. Um, and so these two, among uh, with a few others, started investing in me. And, um, oh my gosh, what was that like for you? Because that is a, that was the first time you were really seen, mm. so to speak. Yeah, that was amazing. And I, I tell, his name's Jason, my, it's my youth minister. I still talk to him and actually we've reconnected and he, because he works with a Christ and youth organization uh -huh. um, in Missouri. But he, that's, that's what I told him. I said, that was life changing for me because I almost felt like, yeah, you were young, so you weren't exactly like my dad's age, but you were kind of like an older brother kind of type. And so I've told him that and his wife that many times. And I talked to him a couple of years ago, and he was telling me that. He said, Chris, uh, you know, we've gone through a lot together, but one of the nights I remember that that really shook me and my wife up is, and we spent, I think, all night crying because when you're at our house, it was after youth group was over, I think, and... I don't remember this exact moment, but he said he remembers it clear um, that I was sitting there talking to them, and I was like, uh, I said, you know, man, I wish you two were my parents, you know, and so I don't remember that exact moment, but he he remembers it, and he said that that they as soon as as soon as we all left, he said him and his wife just sat there and started crying because they were so in love with me, I was in love with them, and so we wanted it to be, but it was a our youth group. We're all a huge family, and God, I do believe God sent them to be a mentor um, for me to be able to see what a good Christian relationship is. Mm -hmm. And not to skip over my grandparents, that was the first time really I got to see a rela Christian relationship. Right. And so to see a second one and to realize what my parents was like, well, that wasn't the norm. Um, and just the respect I have for my grandpa, the fact that I would I'd be sitting there and I'd see them get into an argument and then someone would leave the, my grandpa would leave the room and then minutes later, even if it wasn't his fault, he would just come in and apologize. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's that's crazy. You know, that's... Like, how easy is that? Yeah. Compared to all this other 
Yeah, and so commotion. And they had never had any kind of physical conversation. They were just they would argue for a second. My grandpa would go, "Okay, I gotta leave," and then he'd come back and apologize, no matter what happened. Even if my grandma was just being silly and started it, uh, he would come in and say, "You know what? I'm really sorry." And I was like, "Wow, that's that's amazing." And then seeing my youth minister and his wife together, I'm like, "Okay, this could be something that life can be yeah. worth living." And so. It just started growing, and he said, Chris, you may not be ready now, but someday you should share this story because it's pretty. I mean, it's, I don't even know how to, how to say it. It's just a miracle. And um, You you are a walking miracle. That is a miracle. And I don't even like to say my story. You know, I think this is just God's story that I'm blessed to be a part of. And um, if I can help someone else who's internally suffering or they don't feel that they can persevere, then um, I feel it's my job and why I'm still here is to share that. And so whether it's with you, whether it's uh, juvenile justice facilities, which I've gotten to, gotten to do a lot of, or just schools or churches, it's just wherever God kind of provides the opportunity, I feel it's my job to go, no matter the circumstances or if it's inconvenient for me. Um, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm here for. And so um, my youth minister starts setting up kind of places to speak. I still remember the first time I shared my testimony. It was in oh um, inner city Houston. And it was just a group of, of our church, actually. And, and Jason was like, hey, Chris, no better time than now. You want to share your story? And again, I mean, nobody really knew the details. And uh, I stood up and I still remember I was crying so hard while I was trying to trying to share it. My I couldn't see out of my contacts because they were just filled with water. <laughs> They're and, getting all foggy. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so it actually made it easier for me because I couldn't see. Sure. <laughs> and um and then afterwards, just the amount of love from all my friends was very um, encouraging. Mm. And it just makes you realize, you know, how much people care for you. And um, so then that's where the the story kind of turned into just perseverance and hope. Um, I was baptized. I skipped over the part, but I became a Christian at 14. Now, okay, I've got to ask you this. Mm. How on earth did you trust in the Heavenly Father? when every or almost every situation related to father was negative. Yeah, and so actually I think that's one of the things I love the most is the idea of a heavenly father that loved me no matter what. And so like when I would pray, when you know, I would talk to God, I would always just envision myself you know, sitting in his arms. And so that's kind of how I saw God um, as a child. And I think that helped me, mm. especially not having a father, not having a role model. Um, that's kind of just how I saw him, a loving God that loves you no matter what. And I was still confused about a lot of things as far as why would he let this happen. And, and um, you know, my youth minister gave me books to read and I just started learning about, um, you know, not, he's not, he doesn't really, this doesn't cause it to happen, but sometimes he allows it to happen. And so I'm just trying to take all this in. I mean, you're a teenager. And, yeah, and process it. And it's, it was still, I think it was, a lot of it was over my head and I was just taking it in as I could. And then I didn't know what to do with my life after high school. And, and my youth minister was like, you know what, Chris, you don't know what to do. Just go to Bible college and just kind of try to figure it out. You know, you've got, you've got a semester scholarship. Just go, just go, figure it out. You know, praise the Lord. That's where I went. That's where I met my wife. Um, and while I was there, I'm, you know, I, I had known some faculty there and they're like, hey, Chris, at freshman orientation, can you share your testimony? I mean, it's just powerful. Can you share it? And I said, sure. And so I did. And now, then hold I, on. What do you share? Like, speak to, to whoever's listening or watching. 
like you would be speaking to a school? Sure. Well, a lot of places I would go speak, it would be kind of depending on where um, where I was going. So, like, if I'd, sometimes I'd go to a church and they would say, you know, Chris, can you can you really speak on perseverance or uh, speak on forgiveness? Because that's that's a huge issue that a lot of people have as as far as forgiving somebody that's wronged you. And then other places would say, you know, our kids really need to know about hope. And so I'd go speak to a youth group or something about that. And so it really depends on kind of where I went. But one of my big um, messages that I always like to get out is is the idea of forgiveness. Because even though I felt that I was, I don't know about cured, but just that I was getting better, um, the fact that I hadn't forgiven my dad yet for what he did was just holding me back. And I kind of, and I may be a nerd, but I kind of see it as like your heart is a pie chart. And so if, if part of my heart is reserved for hating my dad, right. then how can I give 100% of my whole heart to God and to my family and to loved ones? And so that's kind of how I saw it. But so my main main passion is to just talk about forgiveness and how that really can affect your life going forward uh, if you don't forgive somebody. Mm. And I didn't realize that till I was, you know, older teens, younger 20s, that that was holding me back. And I had been scared when I was younger because um, I started sharing my testimony around and then I'd, I'd have people come up and say, are you, you know, in the Bible it says you must forgive or you will go to hell. And so then I was just, I was so, and I was scared about what, okay, so what happens if I were to die tonight? And anyway, it, so it got me reading, got me thinking, got me asking questions. And um, so I th forgiveness, I think, is the major issue that uh, I feel that people need to know and especially God provided this amazing opportunity to speak at juvenile facilities mm. around the country and a lot of these kids have been through some horrific things mm. and so they're looking at you thinking well how what kind of loving God would allow this and so then you're you're talking with with them and and some of my favorite moments in the last 10 years are not just going to speak there but afterwards they can request to talk to you one-on-one or in the smaller group and just talking to these kids. Um, I got to go to a correctional facility in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, through which a friend set up who who would is a chaplain there, and he said, or he got me in there, and I was. This was just a this was a special one for me because it's where I was from. I was a very impressionable kid. I would have done anything, and so thankfully I found the wrong the right friends and went the right way. I could have easily. So easily. Gone down another path. I was just, whatever. I would have done whatever. Right. And um, so I could have ended up in that place. And so it was very special to me to get to go speak there. And I remember going in, and this was one of the higher security ones I've been to because I had to walk down all these corridors. All these doors had to open. You know, I've been to places in Florida where it's like you just open the door. There's like mm -hmm. one door, and everybody's just kind of sitting around. And this was not that. And so I was already kind of nervous and scared. And I walk in this room, and uh, just... All these guys are just staring at you. I don't know if they hate you or they're just glad to be out of their room. I don't know. And so I'm just speaking and sharing my story and just talking about um, my life, really. But you and can relate to them, too, because mm -hmm. you're on, you can understand their side of loss and abuse and hurt and pain, but you're also on this other side. Yeah, and I think that's one reason I really liked doing that is because, especially when I try to see it from my point of view, is I'm thinking, okay, here's a motivational speaker whatever, I'll listen to him. <laughs> he's gonna tell me a couple great things and he's gonna go back to his big mansion and, and whatever. And so that's kind of how I, I saw 
motivational speakers like in high school, you know, high school and stuff. Anyway, but so now, and one of the great things is I would, I would travel with a buddy a lot and he would actually start speaking and I would be sitting in the back like I was just like a cameraman or taking notes or something. And he would start, he would start speaking and he would actually share my story. Mm. And then as he was telling it, all these kids were like, wow, I can't believe you know this guy. I can't believe this guy survived. And then all of a sudden he would go, wait a second, let me let him tell you about it. And then he would call me up and then all these kids are just just shocked and it catches them off guard. And you can immediately just start um, talking to their hearts because they're, and it's sad, but um, violence can they feel like, yeah, they, get people to listen. Uh, well, yeah, and they know you get them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember, I remember one like it was yesterday. This kid stood up and he goes, "Oh, so what? I was shot. Yeah, it doesn't matter." And then he like showed like a scar he had, and mm-hmm. me, not really. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said anything. Uh, but my my friend was like, "Well, let me tell you how this happened." And he kind of started explaining the inter- intricacies of how I was shot, how impossible was it for me to survive. Anyway, so if I just remember this kid, and then he sat down, I was like, "Wow," you know. And also the fact that I was shot with a thirty-eight, which is pretty. Large, a slug. Yeah, compared to what. Anyway, it's just it was an interesting time, and the kids will ask almost anything, no matter how uncomfortable or awkward it is. So I've kind of, I think, almost heard just about every question. Huh. But usually, there's always someone will come up with a new one that's like really good. But um, just hearing the hearts of these kids who've who've been wounded. Um, some kids were in there. I've learned that just because their parents didn't want them. I mean, they nothing. It just is heartbreaking. We're at one facility. I don't mean to break off on this tangent too much, but we were at one facility, and my buddy said, you know, who's the youngest kid in here? And this little tiny kid, little tiny kid, raised his hands, and he said, you know, I'm nine. And we were like, oh, man. And just, our hearts broke. And then he goes, our buddy Jeff goes, okay, who's who's the next youngest in here? And this 12-year-old raised his hand, and they were brothers, you know. And so it's just this life that you're trying to encourage them and the other thing that we were trying to do is encourage them. We're not going to come in here and just talk to you, say, hey, you can do this, gang, and then leave. Um, so we're trying to work on curriculum to help them for when they get out. Because the problem is, and right. a lot of domestic violence right. cases like that, is you go back to what you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're afraid. We talked to many kids that said they'd probably just go back to their old friend, gang, whatever, just because that's what they know. That's what they're, and so that was what we were trying to break that chain, mm-hmm. you know. And we're not, we're like, you know, we're not going to come in here and say, I love you. Because, you know, honestly, we're leaving. But we're going to come here and tell you we know because of John 3.16 that God loves you. Um, And that was the only time we would talk about the Bible. That was the only time we'd bring that up. It's just the kids knew from our heart what was going on. And um, if they had questions, of course, we'd talk about it. But it was a state-funded program, so they were real um, protective over what you say. But But you got their heart. Yes. And then kids are people are smart enough to know your heart, where you're coming from. Yeah. without having to quote scripture all the time. And right. so that's just been an amazing blessing to get to do. But like I said, it's a college in Missouri, so I'm trying to keep it in line for you because I'm kind of, okay. I skip around. But um, I do too. I'm totally tracking. Totally we're ADD, great. you know, so I'm, I'm yeah, going from here to here track. to here. <laughs> um, but I think I was saying I was at college, but what I was saying is I shared my testimony. Yeah. And now it's like progressed. And so it's like I share my story. And then like now we talk about other mm-hmm. things. But then it was just like basically I would share my story and then people would ask questions. That's kind of I wasn't like a I'm still not like a great speaker, but I would I was stage fright and just I just knew that I had to do it. So that's all I did was really at orientation was I shared my story. I even um, misquoted a Bible verse and I was just nervous and um, 
I got off, but then I started getting this feeling at Bible college that people had this mentality of, okay, it happened, so what, get over it. And so I went into Oh this. my goodness. Okay, that's a huge <laughs> message in this in yeah. some churches, which is, you know, okay, so I'm sorry that happened, but you know, how long are you gonna how long are you gonna call attention right. to that? You wanna go, you know, it's my life. Yeah. And Probably so forever. I try to see that point now, especially when I'm okay, so I'm watching a video that my church made and there's a lady crying about this happening and and you see, you'd be like, Oh, okay, let's hurry up. But now I'm starting to think, okay, what is her process like, her right. healing process? How long you know, and so it's helped in my heart a little bit as far as the way I, I see it. And so I started becoming recluse. Even I, I came out of it a little while, and then I started going back in after this. Cause I was like, well, you know, people don't care. Honestly, why does anybody care? And so for the long for several years, um, I just stopped talking, sharing stories besides maybe like a one-on-one. If somebody asked me, I wasn't really afraid to talk about it. But the Lord blessed me with uh, Crystal, who... Um, I met in Joplin, Missouri, where mm. I went to Ozark Christian College, and um, we got married. And I just, I think I was longing for, I mean, I got married at 19. So I would, wow. and I have friends ask me, why, you know, why did you get married so early? You still had a lot of fun to well, do. Well, why not? Yeah. And I was like, well, I, I wanted a family. I wanted to, I think that was just something in my life I wanted to, wanted to do. And a couple years later, we had our first, first child. And I just knew that's what I was, God was providing that for for me for healing um right now in the grief process which i think is another misunderstood thing i mean you're going through now as a dad the steps and the years that you didn't have mm -hmm. and that's got to be both a celebration but also a grievous situation how are you doing with that yeah it's very um i feel like my mind is just going around so much because it's I'm trying to live a normal life, be a normal parent, do all this, but in my mind, I'm constantly thinking about, you missed out on this, you missed, but this, and then how should you handle this? And just the other day, I had to have a talk with my son about, you know, he's a teenager. Oh, and, sure. Uh, I kind of said, hey, this is awkward, but we're just shooting baskets. I said, this is really awkward, but, um, you know, I mean, we've already had the talk. Mm -hmm. He's 13, but I was like, wanted to talk about some other things mm -hmm. in relation to that, girls and stuff. And so I said, hey, this is awkward. I just want you to know, you know, I never had a dad to talk to this about. Mm -hmm. So just wanted to let you know that anytime you have questions, come to me. So, yeah, in my head, I'm just trying to think, how should this be? How should a person have said this to me when I was younger? And uh, instead of me thinking, he'd be like, yeah, whatever. He, he was really receptive. He was, I could tell, he was like, yeah. And within two or three minutes of shooting baskets, he asked me a question about mm -hmm. what we were talking about. And so that was a neat process to see. Because again, uh, it's hard to look at my children, especially even when they're sleeping, and I wonder how a parent could do that right. to their children. Um, and you have to, I mean, that's probably going to be a question that you will wrestle with. In mm -hmm. fact, you mentioned forgiveness a minute ago, and I wanted to talk to you about and ask you about this. Um, because this comes from a book that I read on forgiving what you'll never forget by Dave, Dr. David Stoop. And a lot of people say, oh, just, you know, forgive and forget. Mm -hmm. That's not possible. Um, and he says, what makes something feel like it's unforgivable? Is there a common element in those events? When people deal with personal issues, they typically see an unforgivable act as something done to us or some, someone has done something to us. It's either so out of the ordinary that it shakes our moral foundation to the roots. It goes to the 
It goes against some very strongly held core beliefs, and it's usually by, excuse me, it's usually done by someone trusted and loved. Forgiveness always involves the moral side of life. And when you talk about forgiveness, you're talking about a moral choice that it's not going to, it's not just one time. It's probably forever on this earth. Yeah, that's that's a good point because I, it's not like I just forgive my dad at 23 and life's great. You know, it's an ongoing process. So it's it's ongoing when I get married and I'm I wish my mom was there or of course. I wish my brother was there when my son was born. You know, stuff like that. And so it's an ongoing. You just have to continually have this um, forgiveness mentality. Right. And I remember about I think it was like three years ago. Or so I was invited by an organization to be in a documentary about fatherlessness. Mm. And I had, no, I had known these guys. And so we were talking and they're like, Chris, you know, we want you to come to Tulsa. We're going to interview you and do all this stuff. And then we want to go by your dad's gravesite. And I said, well, every time I come to town, I've, I've gone to my mom's and brother's gravesite. I've never even actually gone to my dad's gravesite. Um, I'm more than happy to have, let you guys come along and film. Uh, go there, But I don't know what's, what's going to happen. I don't know. What, I mean, I don't know Were how. Were you resistant act. to it? No, I was just. I kind of was at the point where it's like, whatever happens, happens, you know. And I told them when they asked asked about doing the the documentary, just sure, I'm I'm all for it. Let's if it helps somebody else. And you know, watching it now, they did a, a wonderful job of putting it all together. But I remember saying, okay, we can go. I've never been there. I don't know what kind of emotions are going to come out. I don't know. I don't know. And so, I, but I remember them taking and I going went to my dad's grave and. Um, you know, one minute I'm just staring at this grave, and then the next minute I'm like crying, and the next minute I'm, why would you do that? You know, and so, and they're all they're filming this the whole time, and so it's pretty awkward, but um, it was it was. But a good, that's life because yeah. the emotions are they the mm. pendulum swings so vastly. Correct. And that, it, was, it was a good healing healing process to go mm. through, and again, like you were saying, um, in that is it's just it's a process, and so. Mm. And a lot of people would ask me that, how, when their stuff would happen to them, well, how am I supposed to forgive this and this? And it, I just tell them it's a process. You can't do it overnight. I tried to do it overnight and then um, just move on. And it was just an ongoing process. And still to this day when things happen, when my daughter asked me yesterday, you know, how did my mom die? And so you're constantly, it's not like, it, it's not a forgive and forget like you said. No, it's and not. And so it's an ongoing process. Teaching, teaching love is... Um, Basically, what I'm trying to do, especially with my children, is just talk to them about love. And we, we, we and when they ask questions about what happened right now, say, you know, you know what, Isabel, you're a little young for me to tell you all the details, but just know you've got some things that I didn't have. You have two parents that love you, two parents that are, um, you know, Christians and trying to raise you in a Christian household. And when you get older, you know, we'll tell you some of the things. But as of now, you know. Do you have any specific questions? And so, and I think they're good with that. Mm -hmm. And my son, my oldest son, we kind of told him everything a couple of years back, and that was pretty, pretty hard struggle. And I could tell it was just, it was interesting looking in the. So what happened is we were in Tulsa, and I said, you know what, we're gonna go by my mom and brother's grave, and my, this is when we just had my son, my oldest, and so he was probably, I don't know, he was pretty young, five, I don't know. And um, so we drove by, 
and put the flowers out, and he, I could see the wheels spinning in his head because we never really talked about it. And then I remember as we were driving away from the cemetery, I looked in the rear view, and I could just see this cold face. You know, he was just emotionless because I could tell he was just thinking so much. And so we pulled over, and my wife was like, you know, you know, Dylan, do you want to talk about this and this? And just out of the blue, he just starts bawling and, and asking all these questions. And so it's hard to see as a parent kind of not exactly go through it again, but kind of just a lot of the emotions. But he's also probably mirroring some of the emotions that mm. you have. And I saw that in the rearview mirror and I was driving on. I was like, well, he, just like me, he's pretending like nothing's affecting him and he's got this stone face on. And then all of a sudden, once somebody started pouring into him and asking him about it, he just started crying. And <laughs> that's kind of how I am. It's uh, just... Which in a way is probably somewhat healing. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. I, I read a story the other day about a Holocaust survivor, and he um, he saw his grandmother shot on the stairs. He saw, uh, or he knew that about 80 of his relatives had been killed during the Holocaust time. And there was one evening where one of the um, women brought him into a room where there was a guy all wrapped in bandages, covered up, and um, he had no idea why he was brought in there. And the guy just started talking and he said, here, come sit right here. And apparently it was one of the guards in the, of the Nazi concentration camps who had filled a house, a building full of um, the Jews who were in prison and they let it on fire and they, they all died. And then he had gone through an experience where he had been burned and this kid wanted to get up and leave. He's like, why is this guy telling me this? Um, and as the guy finished the story saying, you know, I don't know why I did that and I don't know what I should do now, the kid sat there and then he just finally got up and left. And there was a group who heard that story and they said, now would you be able to forgive or, or should he have said something or would you have got, gone up and walked out? Almost everyone said, we would not be able to forgive that. We would have walked out. Because it's so huge when you're dealing with um, life and a belief system and, and feelings about forgiveness. I think one of the most important things is to talk about what forgiveness is not so we can know what it is. And in this book that I was reading, it talks about forgiving is not excusing the offender of what happened or of the behavior. It's not tolerating the offender or pardoning the offender or giving a pass, you know, like, oh, well, it didn't matter. Um, it's not forgetting. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not being a doormat. It's not based on conditions. It's not on a timeline. I mean, those are all really important things because in the church, we talk to people about, well, you know, do you just forgive and, and get over this and Christ mm -hmm. forgives and forgets? Well, Christ is perfect. He doesn't have anything to learn from that situation. We, on the other hand, are not. And so when you hear people ask, you know, how do you forgive or what should I do here? How do you respond to that? Well, the other thing is I try to, it's for me, it's hard to process or to think about how somebody else would handle something because I also think about when I was traveling with my buddy, his, his ministry, there was another another kid from Missouri that came with us, and he has not not the same story, 
but a similar circumstance. His dad tried to kill him mm-hmm. through, um, but his dad is in jail and mm-hmm. for life. And so, um, and my buddy is 20, 20 now. Uh, he's mm-hmm. still in Missouri. But anyway, his dad was up for parole last year. And again, and it's just an insane story. And um, But I'm just trying to think from my friend Brian, it's like his dad is still alive. And they asked him um, if he wants to come to the hearing. And he said no. But So I'm thinking in my mind, because I've always thought, you know, what if my dad was still alive? How would I talk to him? What would I do? And it's obviously that my friend's dad has no remorse for what he did. You know, they went and they went and the news crew actually went and interviewed a couple of years back and said, hey, son's getting ready to graduate high school. Do you want to have anything to say to him or anything? And he just said no comment, you know. So he's obviously has no remorse. Nothing's changed. And so in my head, I'm trying to think, how would I forgive that person? How would I handle that? But I always just kind of go back and look at it um, again. The pie chart, the heart. Um, any part of my heart is set aside to hate or to not forgive, then that's that's holding me back, holding back my relationship with Christ, my um, just as a whole, my life, my family's life is being held back by my desire to be affected by what someone else did. And like you said, I'm not forgiving or not, I'm not. Um, justifying their actions right. and saying it's okay. And it's, again, ADD, can't remember the exact analogy, but a guy gave this great analogy about basically if someone stole money from your wallet, um, you may forgive them, but you're not really going to forget that they stole your money. Right. And so you kind of you have a watchful eye. And so it's kind of that analogy as far as messed up analogy, but um, you don't forget. I mean, right. there's there's a, a separation between forgiving and forgetting. I'm never going to forget what happened, right. but I do believe that I have completely forgiven my dad, mm. and um, that has helped me to heal. And even talking with my wife, who has her own stories of things, and how I've asked her, "How do you forgive?" and she's, and we talked about it, and she said once she's completely forgiven for something that happened, it's helped her to heal. Um, she's an amazing, godly woman, and she kind of helps mentor me on things that I may not be that good at. Or anytime I am down, you know, God has placed her in my life to to kind of remind me. And so it, trying to look like going back to see how other people should forgive, it's not, there's not really like a step one, step two. No, I mean, there's, there's not. There's like guidelines, but there's never really like a, if this person did this. And so it's interesting. And it's hard for me to say, hey, Brian, or hey, Crystal, my wife, this is how you should forgive. This is the day you should forgive. This is how many... How much time should go by before you forgive? Or so it it's difficult. And when you're talking to somebody and it's hard to relate, because one of the things I hated, especially when I was younger, is people that would walk up to me and say, Chris, I know how you feel. You know, you don't know how I feel. No, you don't. Even somebody that just flunked a history test and they're they're probably gonna have to drop out of college and their parents and I can't go up and say, Hey, I know how you feel. Right. So it's, it's kinda like what I say when I speak a lot is we may not all have the same story. But we all have the same emotions, the, the fear, the betrayal, just all these emotions that, that we may all be experiencing. So even if you don't have the exact same story, um, we could be experiencing the same emotions. Right. And so I don't ever want to downsize or downplay what someone else is going through just because they weren't shot in the head and their family died. You know, and so it's kind of how. That would be a hard one, though. And, I, and mean, I, I mean, that, yeah. that would be a little bit. But then again, that reveals 
stuff in your own life where the Lord mm -hmm. is continually at work. Definitely. And I was talking to a coworker about this the other day because I think I've been called out on a few times because my way of dealing with a lot of stuff in life is humor. Mm -hmm. And so I would get to the point where I would joke about it, um, not joke about what happened, but kind of joke about situations. Um, so many different things happen. I'd always joke, hey, I got nine lives. I'm invincible. You know, blah, blah. And so yeah. there's just all this humor. And I remember bringing that it up one. That is funny, though. Because <laughs> there's, you know, I've been in crazy car wrecks and other things that happened where wow. I probably shouldn't be around. And um, so my, my coworker jokes, hey, man, I don't want to go anywhere with you because if I get in a car wreck, um, you're going to be the one that survives. <laughs> and then, so anyway, it's just kind of, and I joke around a lot and then realize the other day that there's certain people that don't know the story or they don't, maybe they don't deal with tragedy uh, with humor, and so it's very insensitive. So I've been working on that a lot, but um, again, it's just it's everyone deals with things differently. So there's not really like a do this, do this, do this. But I do encourage others to not focus all their time on um, grudges or hating or just not forgiving in general, because it all it does is hold you down. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right; it is a pie chart because there yeah. are. In my I told my son this very same thing. I said, anytime there's space in your heart that's taken up with hate and, and darkness and hurt and anger, then that has to come out before we can let the good in. Definitely. It's, and it just affects everything else in your life. And I just even look at it like having a bad day at work. Well, you don't want to come home and have that affect the rest of your day with your family. I was talking to a buddy last night, and that's as, as a dad, as a father, that's the last thing you want to do because I'm always trying to picture as a little kid, the last thing I want to do is have you know, someone walk in the door after I haven't seen them all day and then they're just upset because of work. So kind of, it's a little similar as far as trying to separate and not let work affect once you get home and with your family, you're loving. And um, my wife has called me out on that several times because it's like, you get home and I'm stressed out because of work, but now it's like, hey, let's enjoy this time together. And so forgiveness, back to forgiveness, it is, I do believe, it's different for everybody. The process might be different. And um, as, as a little old lady told me when I was in, in high school, it doesn't have to be overnight or I'm going to hell. Um, it, it can be a process. And so I started you know, praying a lot. Um, I remember going forward at one of those uh, conferences mm -hmm. and just saying, I don't know how to forgive my dad or how. And they were just saying, you know, they gave me books to read and scriptures to look at. And um, that's kind of how it started. And then I realized, yeah. even though I'm going around talking about this, it's very therapeutic for me. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to, um, you're not going to completely start healing until you forgive. Um, Which is the choice of the will. Mm -hmm. Now, as our time, I mean, Chris, I could talk to you for all, the rest of the day. Yeah. But as our time is coming to a close, um, I want, I'd like to ask to, that you'd speak to two different groups. First is those who are mentoring or in a youth leadership position or pastors, mm -hmm. speaking with someone who has been so deeply wounded. Um, Let's do that one first. Why don't you just address what is what needs to be said? Sure. And one of the coolest places I've gotten to go speak at is I was invited to go speak at a youth minister's conference. Wow. And so we went to Arkansas, and there was about 800 just youth workers. And I was basically changed the whole message around because it was basically shared my story, and then I was like, hey, you guys, as you're working with all these people, and you're obviously not doing it to get rich. You know, you're doing it because you love people. <laughs> That's the truth. And, um, that always gets a good laugh because mm -hmm. everybody in the audience is like, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but um, I say, hey, you know, in your youth group or whatever, you're, you're, look for that Chris Keith. You know, my youth minister just 
felt the calling to to say, hey, Chris, you know, I know something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have never, if I would have never told him, who knows where what would be going on because I was a shy kid as far as talking about myself, and he just had the wherewithal to say, I know something's wrong. You know, you so I would just say, you know, find that that kid, find that person. Then you have to be kids. It could there's a lot of people, adults that are hurting. They don't know how to handle. Don't know how to process. And it's just you just have to kind of be aware. And when you have, when you find that kid or you think you found that person, don't be judgmental. Don't tell them how they should feel. Uh, I get in trouble with that with my wife. <laughs> don't tell me how to feel. <laughs> but um, but listen. Yes. And so that's all he did was, hey, Chris, I want to learn a little bit about you if that's cool with you. And I've never heard that before. And so I sat down and he read the article and then we just talked for hours. And um, that was the day that I knew that I could make it, people care. And so if you're trying to invest in a child, another grown up in your in your church or at work or school, just um, listen, just basically let them know that you're there. And so I've kind of, I tried to adopt that mentality, especially, especially things you know at work or other places where they're not all you know Christians that go to. And so there's certain things that will turn them off from talking to you. But if you just say, "Hey, I'm here to listen. I don't care what you say. Let's just talk," and eventually that relationship builds, and that's how you can you can um, bring people to Christ and love people because that's really our ultimate job. Really, is just to love others. You know, it's a commandment in the New Testament: just love others. Right. And um, so that's what I'm doing, and that's what I believe I'm here to do while sharing my story. Now, um, for those who don't feel lovable, and for those, this is the second group, mm-hmm. for those who are longing for that youth pastor to follow them into the room, who are dealing with some shame or something so big inside, and they don't know if they can hang on, what do you say to them? Well, I say I do. I mean, I, and I can't really say, "Hey, okay, here's what you're gonna do. Right. You're gonna go up here, turn left, take a right by the That's water fountain. That's not life. Yeah, and then you'll find your mentor. You know, and so right. it's it's hard, but it is. And the issue of perseverance, which is basically, you know, just keep going until something great happens. So one of the uh, great acronyms I saw uh, Big Brother Big Sister use at one of the conferences is push. You know, mm. just persevere until something happens. Or oh, cool. you could also say pray until something happens. But uh-huh. that was a really cool thing to see. And um, it's kind of how it was. And this is something I didn't share. And I didn't share yet. But I, and I didn't find this out until later in life. And this was amazing. And I was like, Grandpa, how could you not tell me this? And um, so basically, I don't know if kind of put it together. But the paramedic, after he was leaving my house and saw that I moved, mm-hmm. I was in the hallway when he saw me move. Um, and the reason I was in the hallway, and this is according to the coroner's report um, indicated by the trail of blood, that after my dad shot me and went into the living room, I actually got out of my bed, crawled to my where my brother was for help, and I noticed that, you know, he wasn't awake, and so I turned and craw- started to crawl t- towards my mom's room for help, um, because I, I didn't know what else to do, but um, I just didn't want to give up as a little child. Um, and so that's where I, from loss of blood, I collapsed in the hallway. And that's where they found me the next day. Um, so as that paramedic was leaving, the only reason he saw me moving was because I was laying in the hallway. And so that is a very good um, lesson, even to me. Even today, as I'm griping about 
electric bill being too much or something. I'm just thinking in my head, Chris, you know, if this little five-year-old boy can just keep going, can persevere, the little five-year-old boy that has nothing, doesn't know what's going on, and um, then you can do it. You know, what are you crying about? And so I would, I always remember that and always encourages me to think about that little kid. Um, it's weird to think that that kid was me, you know, but um, just but thinking about that story. you are paramedic to so many people Correct. Now. And that is a great analogy because he, if he didn't see me, then I don't know, I don't know. You know, I hate to speculate, but yeah, I mean that so many little things along the way can save someone's life. And um, that was one, a big one. And But thinking about that analogy of me just keep going um, until I could no longer go anymore basically mm-hmm. helps me to persevere. And I just basically had to kind of stick with it and, and persevere and go with it until that person came, my youth minister, and just started investing in me. Because love my grandparents dearly but they just didn't know how to they didn't know how to handle me i didn't know how to handle i pushed them away a lot totally not their fault but um that just wasn't there and then my youth minister comes along and it's just amazing and so if you're looking for that person and it may sometimes it doesn't happen when you're looking for that person you know if you're just you're just you've got that strong foundation and you're just holding on and then eventually um you have to hope uh that it comes along and again, I wasn't even looking for a mentor or anything. I was just there hanging out with friends. Um, and he just stepped up and said, hey, I want to invest in you. And that was something I'd never heard before. So I just do say, you know, keep um, keep hope that, or just persevere knowing that it's going to get better. There's something ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm sure this has been an incredibly powerful conversation. And thank you for sharing your story mm-hmm. with us. No problem. Um, and at Insight for Living and with Reframing Ministries, we want to really invest in you. And you can connect with Chris. How can they connect with you? Uh, the easiest way is just go to my website that I haven't updated in a while, but you can still email me, uh, chriskeith.org. Okay. Um, please feel free to write and to connect with us if you are looking for hope or if you're wanting someone to see you. We see you and uh, we care. So please connect with Insight Reframing Ministry or with chriskeith.org. And um, just know you are very loved and there is a plan and a purpose that God has that is, it is so good, although it doesn't always feel good Mm -hmm. at the moment, but it is good. And we want you to believe that. So thank you, Chris, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today as well. Thank you for joining us today on the Reframing Ministries podcast. For more information and resources, visit insight.org slash special needs.